HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Renee Erickson. So first question is, what does the Puget Sound sound like? <laughs> hmm, it sounds like, uh, I guess, a lot of uh, tugboats and horns and uh, tides. Yeah, it's a different, it's waterway traffic. It's not like what we have here in New York. No, not it's gridlock. definitely not like New York. But you grew up on the Puget Sound. I grew up uh, in Woodenville, which is the east side of um, what we call the east side of Seattle. Um, but I spent my summers on the Puget Sound, yeah. So we would stay on the Tulalip Indian Reservation in a shack, and we would fish and crab and clam and hang out on the beach. So what you do now has, has always been a part of your life, living on the, on the water, fishing for you know, the most pristine seafood that you can get. For sure, yeah. Um, we, we would spend a lot of time crabbing and fishing in the summer. Um, my father um, was a good fisherman, and he would, uh, after some encouragement, took me out as well. But yeah, we, we ate a lot of crab, and I uh, am happy to say I love it now much more than I did as a yeah. child. Well, what was it about you know, crab as a kid that you were a little Volume. Wary of. Yeah. Crab every day, every meal. Um, you know, it, it's great, but it was, you know, when you're eight and you want to eat Captain Crunch and you get crab uh, salad and crab on toast or crab quiche, you know, it's, it's, it's decadent and fabulous. But, you know, I think even now if I ate crab every day, I would probably be yeah. pretty tired of it. Well, what, what institute, I mean, what is crabbing? I, I, I picture the waiters, but I don't know it's so anything easy. after that. Yeah. It's like, you know, beer 
beer in a cooler in a, in a boat. That's first and foremost. Yeah, right? right? Beer in a cooler. Um, and yeah, it's super... You know, when we crabbed as kids, we had star traps, which were traps that were flat on the ground, um, and you would pull them up really fast and try to trap the crabs. Now we have uh, traps that are a little uh, more, you know, efficient and easier. So the crabs go in. They can get out eventually. The You know, there's that terrible idea of losing your trap and having it full of crab, but... Um, the you pull it up and it's you know it's chock full of crab hopefully and you sort through them all and keep the ones that are legal and throw the rest ones back so it's it's not hard. Excellent. One day I will come out and go. I will take you crabbing you. for sure. And I will bring the beer. <laughs> um, you know it's it's great and all to talk about you know fish and seafood and that aspect of your life. But what I found most fascinating is you know you went to school for printmaking, for printmaking painting. and painting. Yeah. yeah. I mean so. Were those parallel paths? Were, were you interested in the food aspect, fishing aspect of things, or were you more so striving? Did for I paint artistic? boats? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I I thought I would be an artist and um, probably more of a teacher of art, and um, I, that was you know sort of what I had set out to do. I went to art school at the University of Washington and went to school in Rome. Um, they have a building in Rome um, on the um, Campo dei Fiori and. Spent um, a semester there, and and that was sort of the place, you know, in my life where I stopped and paid attention to food in a way that I hadn't. In that, you know, it was a daily thought process for people. Like, they were planning on what they were going to eat. It wasn't, you know, a fridge full of food that you kind of sorted through and made dinner out of. Um, And um, it... It was amazing. You know, you would walk through the market and you'd pass the butcher and the the ravioli maker and the fish store and the lady that only sold porcinis. And and it was, you know, mind blowing, really, to to go from like, you know, a grocery store in America as a kid to to seeing something that had been that way forever, I think, really, how people thought about food in a different way. And a lot of it, I think, is just, you know they don't probably have a freezer in their basement and, you know, enormous refrigerator where they store everything. So the way that people thought about food in Italy just sort of changed my idea about cooking and, and, um, and what mattered, I guess, in a way. I still thought I was going to be an artist and a teacher, but ended up working in, in Boat Street and, you know, sort of fell in love with restaurants more than, more than, definitely more than elementary school children that yeah. I thought I would teach. <laughs> so it was, it was a, a good, a good uh, career shift for sure. I mean, back, back to Rome, what, what were some of the dishes that you remember that kind of resonated with you? Um, I mean, a lot of it I think is really, is something that I naturally, or, you know, I don't know naturally, but end up really having an affinity to is just simple um, preparations of things and just really paying attention to the ingredient. I remember, um, the porcini lady or couple actually and they had their little stand at the corner near where my school entrance was and and they were there maybe only on Fridays or I don't know they were there one day a week and they had this insane pile of of mushrooms and I was so excited I was going to go buy some mushrooms and I thought you know I'll just buy four and you know not knowing that they were going to cost me like (laughs) I don't know it was going to be like $80 in mushrooms at the time and I was like wide-eyed and I bought one and 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 we I don't even remember what we did with it. I think we just like sauteed it in olive oil and garlic and um but I think just like walking around and seeing like you know um escarole and all the all the lettuces that they served with you know really simple shaved parmesan you know what you still expect to see when you go there but um it's so good you know the the flavors are so um correct you know seasonally correct and and delicious. And I think, you know, when you're in a place that is about, 
you know, Italian food um, in Rome. Um, you know, a lot of anchovies, a lot of um, tripe, garlic, all those sort of dishes. You you sort of crave that and want that. And so I think, um, you know, that not that I'm in a place that has that specific of a style of food. I think seafood is one of them, as well as just being really um, seasonally appropriate has been something that has kind of transferred into how I think about food for sure. So, I mean, with this affinity towards food and cooking, I mean, you never went to culinary school. Nope. How did you land at Boat Street? Uh, I, you know, I, I literally drove by it needing a job and uh, thought it was charming and interesting and uh, stopped in, and a woman, uh, her name's Seema Prasad, who I went to high school with, was managing it, so to speak. I mean, we were both really young and kind of clueless, so it was fun to to walk in and be like, I need a job, and it's someone I knew. So she hired me with pretty much no reason to hire me. Um, and I started serving and didn't really love it. And um, and so I just asked if I could work in the kitchen. So I learned to prep, you know, like anyone does, and, and bake and do all sorts of kind of the, all the fill-in kind of work. And just, you know, after time I got, you know, was able to become, you know, more part of the kitchen. So I learned more and I cooked more and then eventually I was running it. I mean, it was a, you know, it's a restaurant that was, um, you know, uncommon in that I think the opportunities that were available were not traditional, you know, like I don't think I could have done that sort of, exp- that sort of experience isn't standard. I don't believe in a restaurant where you can like you know, walk in and then be like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to cook on the line. You know, like you have to do your, you have to do some, uh, some time before that happens. But I, I lucked out and, and, um, eventually bought it. So it was sort of a, you know, again, not, not your standard story, but I'm really thrilled. It was mine. Yeah. I mean, but you educated yourself in a different way through Julia mm-hmm. Child, through Elizabeth David. I mean, <clears throat> how did reading those books, reading, you know, those recipes help you as a cook? Um, you know, I think their honesty towards uh, making decisions about food and, and sort of their attention to tradition and, and simplicity, like, you know, one of, still one of my favorite recipes is a strawberry jam recipe in Elizabeth, Elizabeth David, where it's just like strawberries, sugar, cooked till done. You know, it's like, there's nothing there. It's this really hysterical, you know, no help. But, you know, I think, you know, their 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 attempt to, or her attempt to, you know, encourage the the cook to interact with what they're doing rather than having someone be like, in 20 minutes, you know, put it in the freezer and check it and make sure, you know, there's all that sort of like hand-holding. And she's just like, you know, I got other things to tell you about. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, I'm not a, you know, like I'm not a trained cook in that regard. So I don't have, you know, every trick up my sleeve or anything. And so I'm definitely more of a uh, kind of, pay attention and see how things go and react to it rather than like have a exact plan. Yeah. I, I love how the book, um, a boat, a walrus and a whale opens up with boat street cream scones Yeah, and, and the blackberry jam, two very simple, but very particular recipes. Mm-hmm. I know I've made scones before and they've turned out terribly. Sure. Most of them do. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, what was that handholding? What was that? You, you learned uh, about how to make the best scone possible, how um, to make the best blackberry jam. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know that they're the best. I think they're good. They're <laughs> I think fantastic. they're, yeah. I think, um, you know, I think one, making a scone with cream really kind of uh, helps you out a lot. I think it gives a lot more moisture and and um, richness to the scone, where sometimes they can be really dry and crumbly and, and not that lovely. Um, 
And then, you know, I'm from Seattle, so blackberries are abundant. And, and to not include that as an option for jam is sort of absurd. They grow wild everywhere, and you can pick, you know, pounds of them. And they're incredible. They're something that I think is really, and, you know, something that we spent, you know, my whole, I mean, we picked blackberries forever and, uh, and froze them and kept them around. So they're, you know, it's just part of, part of being a Seattle girl. Yeah. How fertile the land is in Seattle. It's amazing because going out there, you know, there, there's this idea of it, it always being rainy. It always yeah, being right. foggy. I mean, that's not true. No, we lie to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to dispel that. And, yeah. you know, but it, it's not true. It, it's stunning. It's beautiful. I went during July one year where it's just sun and, and you know, everything's green and, and you know, flush. It's a it's a magical place. I mean, I think the the weather isn't, you know, it's it's you know, it's still the northwest, so we definitely have a good a fair amount of rain, but I think what people assume is that it's really cold and really rainy all the time and, you know, we're on the coast, so weather changes all the time. Um and you know, and we have a proper spring where it's, you know, sunny and beautiful and then pouring down rain and and then summer comes and we have about three solid hopefully four sometimes months of you know 70 to 90 degrees so it's super super mild for summer weather there's hardly any humidity um but yeah it's 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 pretty fantastic and then we have the mountains so we're kind of trapped between these perfect environments trapped Trapped. (laughs) (laughs) yeah happily um yeah so we have the cascades and the and the olympics and then the puget sound and the ocean so it's we've got all you need it's not a bad place. And a desert, be. which yeah. you grow amazing tomatoes in. So it's, it's, it's a great spot. And, you know, aside from crabbing while younger, were you surrounded by all these things? Were you picking blueberries as a child or was this a more culinary venture? Um, no, we had a farm. I mean, a, not a farm, a garden. Um, my, in Woodenville, when I was growing up, it was m- very different than it is now. Now it's, you know, strip malls and wineries everywhere. And... Um, at that point we had two and a half acres and my dad was a landscaper. So he had a lot of trees and, and, um, things planted. We had a lot of fruit trees and, uh, we had a garden and we grew, you know, everything, beans, tomatoes, uh, carrots. I might, you know, one of my chores was to weed the garden and there's many stories that my mother will tell of me eating more than weeding. But, um, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time, you know, growing things. Um, you know, we also had, you know, the same sort of casseroles and all the other junk that we made in the 80s and 70s but uh there was a lot of really great food in our family for sure you know i remember i mean the you know the beach is the most um kind of vivid memories of food um mostly i think because we you know it was harvested and um we would go fishing and get to you know gut a fish and wait and wait to grill it and yeah, it's it, it's idyllic for sure to be able to do that as a child. Um, and even now, you know, like I feel really fortunate to be able to go crabbing and fishing and um, actually catch things. <laughs> it's, fishing's tough. It's it's not it's not easy to do. So crabbing is is where it's super rewarding because you can really, um, you know, count on coming back with some dinner. Yeah. And you have that beer. Yeah, and you have Rainier. Yep, for sure. <laughs> Excellent. We're going to take a quick break, come back, talk about pickles, oyster, wood fire, and so much more. Perfect. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Bread Hook, Brooklyn. The beige sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Renee Erickson of Awaris and the Carpenter, Whale Winds. You know about Boat Street, but do you know about Shirley? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about your mother. Shirley is a force. Um, She and my father now both run Boat Street Pickles, which is a company that I started probably five-ish years ago um, while while being the chef at Boat Street. Um, We had a lot of um, pickles that we would make to serve with um, dishes there, and there was a lot of people wanting them for home. And so after uh, many years of saying no, we finally started putting some in jars. And so, yeah, we sell four, almost five varieties. We have a new one that's going to come out here this year. And uh, the pickling thing is, is, you know, something that I started at the old Boat Street. Uh, I had come back from France um, with had recently eaten something that was similar to our pickled plum. And it was, you know, just an odd thing to have in general. Um, and, and, and that it wasn't super sweet was really interesting to me. And it was served with a giant plate of, um, you know, charcuterie. So it was something that I hadn't had before and thought was really interesting. So when I returned, we started, we pick, you know, we messed around with pickled plum for a long time. And then, um, and then kind of, as I think most people that pickle, do become obsessed and start pickling everything. Yeah. So yeah, so we have a pickle plate at all the restaurants, and and then it changes. We you know it's really something that um, we uh, you know seasonally it's like kind of the perfect thing to have um, change as you go through the seasons, and then be able to kind of extend it as well. We don't jar up a lot in the restaurants just for space, um, but we do do like giant you know five gallon buckets of you know pickled chanterelles right now, and and things that you know in two months we wouldn't have. So. Um, yeah, it's it's fun. It's a great way to um, experiment and and to be creative and kind of check out new ways of you know using different spices and things without you know worrying about it being good or bad. It was it's a fun way to play around. So I, you you just mentioned France, and I know that's a big influence for mm-hmm. you because you know someone who was initially um, energized by Rome. Right. It's funny to see so much French cuisine in your restaurants, and when Walrus and Carpenter opened up, obviously initially an oyster bar, but. It, it has that bistro essence mm-hmm. sense to it too. I, I, you know, Walrus was a restaurant that I spent many years thinking about and kind of putting together in my head, and um, and I did. I went to France, I went to Normandy, and to Paris to uh, for research, and uh, I really appreciated the simplicity of how they could, you know, have a oysters on you know virtually every corner. And, and it became something that was, you know, every day versus, you know, a special evening. Uh, and, um, and there's a, there's a beauty to how the French put together a restaurant. It's pretty spectacular. And the consistency of, of, of that, um, 
I wanted to have in our restaurant. So uh, having it be, um, you know, lively and bright and, and warm, um, but also still kind of classic and have the focus be the oysters was the biggest, was the, the most important part. So I wanted that to be uh, something that people couldn't, you know, like not know was the point of coming there, you yeah. know, to have them front and center and then in big baskets piled up was something that I felt like was kind of my version of the stand on the street. Basically. Yeah. I mean, it, it's both a very local joint. Ballard is a yeah. very, you know, local city yeah. it's town. I don't even know what to call it. It's community for sure. Um, it's been like the bar place in, in Seattle forever. So as much as, going to a restaurant can be a special occasion. You wanted it to be an everyday thing. And what I love about your book is that you do kind of point out these special occasion dinners. You sure. write it, you say, you know, a Normandy dinner, New Year's Eve, but these are also everyday menus. They, sure. It doesn't have to be celebratory to be, you know, on the table. No, and, you know, part of the chapters also include many small kind of dishes that you have to sort of do a little bit more work on your own, putting them together. But yeah, I mean, I, by no means is this supposed to be, you know, like the New Year's Eve dinner, I think we actually listed out as being, you know, something just for a party as well. But having, you know, something that you can put together without it being, you know, hours of at the, hours at the table versus something that's out on a lawn in, you know, July, I think is something to pay attention to as far as events. I feel like a lot of times we're, you know, we eat a lot out, I think, culturally, but we maybe aren't eating for very long. I know it's, it, I mean, it's, it's exhausting at times, but parties where you're there forever and get to really hang out with people is really important. And food, I think, is the one thing that really forces people to do that. So it's a great, great excuse. What's on the menu for Sundays at home? Uh, Sundays at home is the clam dish, which is, you know, I don't know. I, as a cook, I think you kind of go through stages of loving things and then moving away from them. And clams is something that pretty much could eat clams, you know, two or three times a week. I, I think they're such an easy thing to cook. Um, they're fast, which is great. And uh, seasonally, you can add, you know, whether it's sorrel or kale or, you know, whatever's in your garden to it to make it, um, you know, appropriate and easy. And, and And then you get to have this delicious broth that you put butter or wine or you know, crumb fresh in and, that, and a hunk of bread. That's my favorite finish of any seafood dish. I've ever, that little bit of creme fresh yeah. that just kind of holds that sauce together. Well, and it's it's rich without being over the top. You're not like dumping a cup of cream into it at the end. It's It has, you know, just enough kind of decadence without kind of overwhelming you. Yeah. So. And that's what I've been to the way Owens, and that's what it feels like too. It has just enough decadence, but doesn't overwhelm you. So it, it has this kind of stature to it, but it, it's so inviting. <laughs> that's good. At the same time too. <laughs> and I remember when that dish was put in front of me, and it had all those black lentils, I believe, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, it's, it's just mind-blowingly. You, you don't think you're an artist, but you know you are when you, when you see a dish like that, you know, yeah. on the table. It's you know that was one of the. Um kind of aha moments for me about the book was sort of really seeing how my education is part of what I do now versus like, you know, it's not a literal, uh, you know, culinary education, but like my, my ability to kind of like pay attention to the world and, and incorporate artistically that into my food is something that I don't think I pay. I don't think I noticed as much until we were making decisions about the book and, and I was really clear about some things and I wanted it to be, you know, certainly more artistic than just about cooking. So, yeah, it's I mean, fun. Tell me about the human, Jeffrey Mitchell. Oh, the human. 
he well he he did the cover for the book and he's one of my oldest dearest friends and um he was somebody who was my professor when i was in school at the university of washington and and i you know i have i have a painting degree um and printmaking but you know i don't know I hope no one at my school is listening, but, um, you know, it, it was sort of a breath of fresh air meeting him at the school. Cause I think painting professors, um, at least historically at the UW, I felt, you know, there was a lot of, um, what you were supposed to do, you know, as far as being a, a painter. And it, it was so refreshing to meet Jeffrey and just, you know, he, he can take anyone of any sort of level of talent and, and bring out what's best in what they do. And, you know, like, I'm probably really lucky I'm not an artist in the world because I don't know that I would do so well. But but Jeffrey has this magical way of making you believe that what you're doing is is worthwhile and good and, and relevant. And um, and so I, you know, thankfully am, am one of his friends, and he has really encouraged me and, and, and been part of my kind of growing as an artist in my career. So... He, you know, it, it made total sense to have him do the artwork for the book because it was, you know, kind of wrapping up all of his his involvement in my life and 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 the importance of his guidance as a as an actual artist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I see that you reciprocate that with him, but oh, you also yeah. extend it to other people you work with, like Hama Hama mm-hmm. oysters. Yeah, I mean, there there are amazing oyster recipes, like a grilled oyster with snail butter, but. How do the two of you, you know, Hama Hama uh, and your restaurants kind of collaborate? Um, you know, I think part of being a cook is really relying on on your purveyors and your farmers and, and the relationships you build with them. And that's, you know, maybe the best part of being a cook a lot of times is having somebody working really hard to give you the best thing for you to then sell to your guests. And, you know, oysters is something for sure you know, you want to know who's doing it and you want, you want to trust that they're taking care of it and, and, and also taking care of, you know, the environment and all the things that, you know, the fallout of being a farmer is you have to be responsible to what you're doing as well. And so as a cook, you want that as you want someone that you can trust. And, and I totally feel that way with Hama Hama, um, you know, uh, local roots is another farm in the book and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's super satisfying to have those relationships and be able to call and ask for, something to be farmed special for you or or just know that you're going to get it every tuesday and friday you know i love one of uh, the little tips in the book is find a boat like if, <laughs> if it's not stocking a pantry it's finding a, find boat. a boat so tell me a little bit about warner lou um warner is so walrus was a place that we hoped would be a place where fishermen would come so they could roll up and you know, rubber boots and all, and sit down and have a beer and eat some oysters. And um, Warner was one of the many, um, you know, fishermen, proper fishermen that would that would come in. And and he and you know many other people have done this as well. But he he's a character. He's passionate about um, herring in particular, but other things as well. And he showed up. He's shown up with all sorts of things. Um, but but herring is the is the most um, in, in you know. Thing that has impacted our our menus in the restaurants, and he um, he brought us literally a giant lug of herring. He's like, here, you know, do something with this, play with this, and and since then we now have you know the smoked herring that's in the book, and and I've been to Alaska with him to see the herring fisheries, and and it's just you know it's that same sort of thing where you just open up yourself to people being willing to like show what they love and bring it to you, and and 
and it's you know it's the best way to get stuff we have people bringing urchin in and it's it's you know you sort of can't even believe it that they're just walking in the door with a basket full of something for you as a gift and um you know even abalone people have brought abalone to us and it's fun. It's, yeah. it's the best. You know, and it's just because you can see how excited they are, you know, especially especially when it ends up on the menu and they can come in and have it, you know, for dinner and tell, you know, their bosses who think they're crazy for hauling around herring in Seattle. So it's it's great. But you also get to travel and explore a little bit, and you don't have to go too far to find Lumi Island. No. Uh, Lummi is... Uh, a place that Jim Hankins, who's the photographer, he is. Um, he has a home, thankfully, uh, right across the beach, and we spent a lot of time there, uh, fishing and crabbing and and testing recipes. And he, um, like recently, we went to see the um, reef net fishing, which is a fantastic, cool way of fishing, which I had really no concept of, other than um, seeing the gear out on the water and wondering how it actually works. But we got to go. And watch it, and and it's you know it's one of those things that is in decline as far as the um, you know it's just not as easy as dropping a gill net, so people aren't as and it costs more. So there's lots of reasons um, why you know the gear have gone from like I think like 400 to 40 or something like that in the Northwest. But uh, yeah, I mean two hours and you're on the beach and it's. It's crazy. So beautiful. And one of the recipes are these stunning raw spot prawns. That was probably one of the best days. We were out um, off of Susha Island, which is near Lummi and Orcas. And um, actually, Dan, who's sitting next to me, he uh, he was cra- or, uh, spot prawning with us. And we, we set a trap, and I think we got one, maybe. One measly little spot prawn, and and it was we had to get more because we had enough. You know, it's not like we had like a backup of spot prawns for the shoot. So we were. Um, he was the eternal optimist, and we we dropped it down, and I think drank some beer and and waited, and and ended up with um, a giant bucket of spot prawns, which was fantastic. But yeah, we had um, lime peel and some olive oil, and just you know, it's 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 amazing. If they come out, they're like three hundred feet in the water, and when you pull them up. They, they start to turn bright orange and their eyeballs kind of are like this iridescent blue and 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 it, and they change like right before your eyes as they come up out of the water and um, and eating a, a spot prawn like I mean it you know it's sad but fantastic you know yeah. it's like you take their head off and and crack them open and eat them raw and there's I mean they're they're so sweet and and um, have such great uh, minerality like that you I think only get for like a minute or two probably and then and then it's then it's different but it, it it's one of those things that if you have a boat you can go out and and eat your own fresh spot prawn how clean and, and pure this book is not just in its imagery but in some recipes um reminds me of some of your favorite drinks rosé and cider yeah but you know that crispness that that's what kind of carries throughout this book your restaurants and all the food that you do so it's only fitting to finish with you know cider and rosé sure wash it all down but your birthday (laughs) that that menu it's just so strikingly clean you know it's so cleansing and so exciting at the same time yeah, um, my birth, you know, it is sort of a joke now um, that we call it a national holiday, even though it's not. Um, uh, it, you know, I'm I'm a Leo and, and my birthday is in, in August and in Seattle, you're guaranteed sun in August. So it's always 
a reason to throw a big party because you can be outside and you can invite your friends. And, and that was something that my parents did as when I was a kid. We would have big outdoor parties with badminton and, you know, hand-cranked strawberry ice cream. And, 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 and so those became, you know, something that we did every year. So I've carried on the tradition and throw big parties um, for myself, sort of. But really, it's just like an excuse to have, I mean, like literally 40 or 50 people together and drinking tons of tons of rosé and and eating giant big cote buffs and perfectly simple sliced tomatoes and and peach cobbler which is in the book and really one of the most delicious desserts and um really you know it's weirdly simple which is one thing one thing that i really like about the dessert is you don't have to be you know you don't have to make the perfect pie crust to make this work it's really just about like really ripe fruit and just paying attention to it well even if we don't get the invite to your birthday <laughs> this year we can get the book for sure <laughs> a boat a whale and a walrus and celebrate with you every year if not every day yeah why not thank you renee thank so you much so for much. being here happy been to be here too happy for you to be here <laughs> thank you again you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org i'm your host michael harlan turkel hoping to have you back here next tuesday at three cheers thanks for listening to this program on heritage radio network.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.